Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. If you are new to Faith Radio, we couldn't be any happier that you are finding and discovering us and starting to listen and, and learn from all the great teaching that's on Faith Radio. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you're a regular, uh, we, you know, we're just so glad you're here because you're here all the time with us and we just love you. So thank you. You know, I was thinking of Moses. Moses was, uh, I've been studying a little bit about Moses lately, and he had this ability to react, all, you know, quite. Um, intensely throughout his whole life. I mean, he seemed to uh, have his uh, conflicts around him. And even when the burning bush, he looked at that and thought, huh, I can learn more about that. He had to investigate whether he was jumping into a fight to defend a Hebrew slave or just trying to referee a struggle between a couple of Hebrews. When Moses saw conflict, he just did something about it. And if you're a conflict avoider, a little bit like me, maybe you're uh, not so good at that. But I want to say that uh, I'm much happier when I respond than when I react. Because when I react, usually something comes out that isn't very healthy. But when I respond, it's always so much better. So I always get, say that there's three Ps. There's the pause, then there's the pray, and then there's the proceed. So if you just pause for a second and say, Lord, here I am in this situation. I'm going to just ask you to go forward with me and give me the words that I need to do and have and say and then proceed. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in a much uh, more constructive place because you haven't reacted. Sometimes when you react, you say things you kind of wish you could get back. Because I've been there before too. We have a uh, great show today. Rob Blue is going to be joining me. Lots going on in Washington, D.C. He's my go-to correspondent. And Rob is the executive editor of The Daily Signal. And then Mary Jo Sharp is going to be uh, joining the program. It's an interview I did a little while back, and she talked about uh, a book. She's written a book called Why I Still Believe, which is a fascinating book. She started off in atheism, and now she is a person who loves the Lord. And then in hour two, I'll be joined by Dr. Jim Bilby, a theologian and professor from Bethel University, and then Dr. Rick Borgon will be joining me as well. We're going to talk about Ephesians chapter 4. That's what's on the program for today. It's going to be a great, great day. So to get things started, we'll take uh, about a 60-second break, and then we'll bring on Rob Louie, who is my Tuesday regular guest, all the way from Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. faith to life every day. That's the focus of Faith Radio. I'm station manager Neil Stavum. Through your prayer and financial partnership, this listener-supported ministry is reaching more and more people daily with the hope of the gospel. 
and helping to apply biblical truth to everyday life. So for all of you who have resolved to stand with us, regardless of the amount or method, thank you. And get the new year started with your gift today at MyFaithRadio.com. Faith Radio offers a free resource that will ground you in your faith each week. It's the prayer devotional email, and it's easy to receive. Simply sign up at MyFaithRadio.com under the subscriptions tab. Then you'll be sent a weekly message with words of inspiration and prayer. It's a wonderful way to connect with God and equip you for the week ahead. Once again, just visit MyFaithRadio.com, click on subscriptions, and sign up. You'll be blessed by the prayer devotional email. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad I get a chance to talk to Rob Bluey today. I'd love to, love to get my hands on his high school yearbook. I bet he was Mr. Congeniality. That's what I'm guessing. He's the executive editor of the Daily Signal, and he's here Tuesdays. Rob, welcome. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Were you Mr. Congeniality? I bet you were. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I'm trying to remember what I was. <laughs> I, think I, I think I had the most school spirit or something see? like that. See? It's the same <laughs> thing. I rest my case. There no, you go. No further questions, Your Honor. Uh, All right, let's. Those day, fun days, fun they days. They were fun but, days, but, but a lot more, a lot more serious uh, discussions uh, in Washington this week. I mean, I'm telling you, Bill, uh, it seems like no matter uh, which direction you turn, you're confronted with a major news story. And oh my country. goodness, yeah, I wouldn't mind starting with a little bit of what's going on with uh, Iran because. All right, they, they responded with all these missiles, but they couldn't seem to hit any targets or they didn't seem to fire. But I think their their missiles are a pretty serious threat, aren't they? They are, yes. And in fact, uh, you know, we're starting to see some some photography and, and footage of the damage that was done on the, the air base in Iraq, which is, you know, obviously a sovereign territory within, uh, within the country of Iraq. So, I mean, not only did the Iranians uh, target uh, U.S. Uh, personnel, but they, they did so on uh, Iraq's turf uh, and, and ground. So, uh, yes, we, we are fortunate that the, the missiles did not uh, take out any individuals. That, uh, that, that is uh, certainly something that we, uh, we, we continue to pray for those who are in harm's way there. I mean, mm-hmm. We know how dangerous it can be. At the same time, uh, look, Iran, uh, during the course of its... Uh, as some have described it, a fireworks show. They they did uh, accidentally, it seems, take down this uh, Ukrainian yeah. airline uh, flight, and that that happened after the initial burst of of missiles. Uh, but uh, it was and it was, I guess, uh, you know, an, an opportunity, and they they felt that it was a threat uh, coming to into their country from the United States or somebody else, when in fact it was a commercial airliner. So I I don't mm-hmm. understand fully. Um, how this happened. I, I, we have some experienced uh, uh, Air Force veterans on our team here, uh, including Nolan Peterson, our foreign correspondent, who's based in Ukraine. I'm himself a fighter pilot, and he wow. said that it's just uh, it's unfathomable that uh, Iran would, first of all, um, not halt commercial air traffic, and at the same time that, uh, that who is ever operating the missiles would not have the common sense to to you know make a distinction between a commercial airliner and uh, and a missile that might be incoming. So a lot of a lot of questions still to be answered, Bill. Yeah, Rob. If we were to conjecture, if these missiles hit the base and let's say killed five American soldiers, what would the response have been? Would it have been a different response? I, I do believe that there would have been a response if uh, if America there were American casualties. Uh, President Trump 
was certainly uh, in a position last week where he was exerting the maximum pressure campaign against Iran. Um, I, 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 in terms of how it, it all transpired, it seems that the, um, the, the death of, uh, of the Iranian general Soleimani uh, was, in fact, a, maybe a de-escalating event, because what happened was Iran had, over the course of, of several months and even years, been ratcheting up its campaign in the region, uh, targeting Saudi uh, oil fields, taking out the U.S. drone. Uh, you know, the rhetoric was increasing, and the U.S. made a bold move. And President Trump uh, should be commended for for having the decisive, uh, uh, you know, decision making to to go and do that. And what happened was Iran. With uh, you know this response that that uh, I think demonstrated to the Iranian people that they would fight back against the United States, but at the same time it certainly wasn't the kind of attack uh, that Iran's leaders were promising. Now you have to remember, Bill, uh, we live in a country with a free press where information mm -hmm. is widely accessible. The Iranian people don't, and so what the government says uh, is, is oftentimes propaganda, and they, the Iranian people might be being uh, misled in terms of what actually happened. I mean, there were all sorts of rumors going on about the missile strike and that there were actually uh, injuries or casualties, um, and that's, uh, that's maybe a story that the Iranian people heard, unfortunately, uh, but that is what the government there is trying to do, is to, to cover up um, not only well, frankly, they they, they failed to cover up uh, what they were trying to cover up with the Ukrainian airlines flight because of the the protests that were were mounting in Tehran and other cities. Mm -hmm. And then speaking of Soleimani, this funeral of his that was a little bit of stage theater. I think that part of it was, but you have to remember that this individual did have almost a larger than life reputation in Iran. Mm -hmm. So. He's somebody who came of age uh, as a as a he had very limited schooling. He uh, he came of age, went to work in construction. I think it was around the age of twenty that he he became involved uh, with the Iranian military or the Revolutionary Guard, and uh, and over the course of his uh, his career uh, developed a reputation within Iran, uh, kind of like a, a cult like following. So I, I do think that. The people who turned out uh, at his funeral and 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 came to to pay their respects um, were were there for a genuine reason. I do think that certainly there was uh, an effort on the part of the government to to drive up those those numbers and and portray on the world stage that uh, that he was uh, he was being mourned in this way uh, so that it would send a strong message to the rest of the world about Iran's response. Um, even. Uh, Nolan Peterson, who I mentioned earlier, our foreign correspondent, who's based in, in Kiev, Ukraine, uh, went to the Iranian embassy, and there was a display there. Um, so clearly the government had uh, you know, plans in place in which they were going to try to honor uh, him. Uh, we have to remember who he is, and I know we talked about it on, on last week's show, but he was somebody who's responsible for, for the killings of over 600 Americans uh, through, through activities that, uh, that he controlled. And so he, he was on the battlefield. He was uh, very likely plotting a, a future attack against mm -hmm. the United States or our interests in the region. But there are a lot of Iranian people that are, are, are glad he's gone. I think so, and mm -hmm. I think that I think that the the recent protests we've seen over the weekend, uh, which I know our our own uh, our own uh, Secretary of State was was following closely, uh, I think for for good reason. The Iranian people uh, have been repressed and don't necessarily um, uh, suffer the consequences, shall we say, if if they were to speak out. And so uh, you're seeing this 
happen all over the, the, the region. I mean, we, remember the Arab Spring and, mm-hmm. and the, the demonstrations we saw there. Uh, you have seen frustrations uh, carrying over in uh, Venezuela with uh, the situation there, Iran, Hong Kong. I mean, uh, uh, look, people uh, really, I think, cherish the freedoms that we have in this country of ours. I think sometimes we don't maybe necessarily appreciate them for as much as uh, uh, we do. Uh, but uh, but certainly in a country like Iran, uh, it's encouraging to see people uh, – pushing back against this uh, repressive government. Yeah. So the Supreme Court, Rob, back uh, in session after kind of a longer holiday break, um, what's on their plate? Sure. Well, uh, it's always interesting to watch, uh, as, as you know, uh, from from my past experience of, of covering the Supreme Court and uh, and the work we do, we uh, we keep a close eye on it. In fact, uh, if I could, Bill, I'd like to give a plug for my colleague Elizabeth Slattery, who has her own podcast called SCOTUS 101, uh, which is a, a great deep dive into the cases that uh, the Supreme Court uh, is hearing. Um, so they did return yesterday on Monday uh, for oral arguments, um, and uh, the justices are, are hearing arguments in about eight different cases in this this span of time. Uh, One of the bigger ones involves uh, school choice. Uh, School choice, of course, is giving uh, parents and students an opportunity to have more say in in, uh, a kid's education than uh, you would typically get. So uh, the court's going to uh, hear arguments in that. But we um, we you know also have this uh, this Bridgegate case uh, and uh, for your listeners who might remember Governor Chris Christie, a one-time Republican presidential candidate, uh, he was New Jersey's governor at the time, and when he was trying to punish a political opponent, uh, the mayor of Fort Lee, uh, when he uh, decided to close down some special access lanes for traffic, so going into Manhattan in New York City, so caused a major disruption for uh, for commuters, and uh, and now it's uh, before the Supreme Court, so. Wow. <laughs> we that shall was, see how that turns out. Was that, what, about seven years ago that happened? It was. It was uh, in 2013. Okay. Uh, it was actually the uh, the first day of the new school year. Um, so you can imagine oh, what, what life was, was like, right? Gridlock. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, gridlock. So uh, the case all went through all the system, and now it's up before the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, the Supreme Court, uh, you know, it takes very few cases, I mean, compared to a lot of the circuit courts. We've talked about judges and, and how many President Trump has had confirmed, uh, of course, the two big ones for the Supreme Court, but a lot of judges for these appellate courts. And uh, these cases that do make the Supreme Court are worth watching because they do have uh, sometimes nationwide consequences. Mm-hmm. I still want a little bit more info on Supreme Court. Let me take a little break. Rob Bluey is my guest, executive editor of The Daily Signal. You can always head over to dailysignal.com. Uh, we'll take a short break and be right back. chatting with Rob on Tuesdays. He's the executive editor of The Daily Signal. We're just trying to catch up a little bit on Supreme Court news, um, and they are back in session. Uh, first of all, what do you think of the uh, the, the court right now? Is uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, is she back working? She is back. Okay, good. She, uh, she has announced that she is cancer-free, so That's we fantastic. are all grateful uh, that, that she starts the year uh, in a healthier position than she's been in the past. But yes, we have all nine justices. Uh, nine for the moment now, Bill. I mean, you have several presidential candidates who want to increase that number to 15. So I know. We, we, may, we may be in store for a different composition in the future. But, uh, but yes, they are all there, and they are all, uh, they are all hearing cases. Of course, this is the time of year when we, we don't, we're not quite at the decision stage yet. Uh, I think the first decisions we usually hear about in March, and then they mm-hmm. usually run through June. And then do you think that some of the Democratic candidates will uh, share their list of proposed Supreme Court judge judges? 
Well, Bernie Sanders made some news recently, and he seems open to it. Okay. I think uh, there are others who are, are not inclined to do so. I mean, we, we still are at a stage where I think it's probably premature for them to do so. I mean, th- we haven't even had the first caucus or primary right. yet. So uh, if you recall, President Trump, I think, did that uh, as, as a means of distinguishing himself uh, uh, against uh, not only his Democratic uh, competitor, but also to assuage some of the fears that maybe the um, uh, you know, conservative movement had about uh, what direction he would necessarily take things. Uh, of course, Trump's sister is, is, is a judge and somebody who he's spoken highly of, but doesn't necessarily share the same uh, you know, uh, ideology as, as many conservatives. So uh, yes, I think that if President Trump were to come out, uh, it would be uh, uh, you would, it would force at least the other other candidate to to do the same. Trump, by the way, has said he's probably going to stick with the same people who are already on the list. Mm-hmm. It's not to say he won't add to the list, but there is the possibility that if he's reelected, there could be um, up to, to two or more vacancies uh, with the age of some of the justices, or maybe other maybe some of the conservative leading justices who decide this is an opportunity to retire because a Republican president would appoint their successor. Mm-hmm. Your colleague Jared Stetman did a nice job uh, talking about the Equal Rights Amendment. Can you give us an update on that? That's right. Well, it's in the news this week. Uh, this is a uh, this has been debated since uh, 1971 when the House passed it, in 1972 when the Senate passed it. So uh, I'm going to date myself. I, I wasn't even born yet, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but believe it or not, uh, the uh, the issue is still alive. Uh, this would uh, of course be a new constitutional amendment, uh, the, the 29th, if I if I'm counting my amendments correctly. And uh, and what what's at issue here is whether or not not, uh, there can be this uh, long protracted delay. So one, they need one more state uh, to pass the, the amendment. And uh, if that's the case, uh, it, there, there will likely be a court challenge, I would suspect, um, because here's what happened. Uh, after the House and Senate, the U.S. House and Senate passed it, uh, there was a ten, about a 10-year window for the, the necessary number of states, uh, 38 states, uh, to ratify the amendment. Uh, well, they didn't get to that number. They extended the deadline once, uh, and they, uh, the, but, it, but it expired, I believe, in 1982. Uh, last year, Illinois uh, passed uh, the amendment, becoming the 37th state to ratify it. And Virginia, which has a newly elected Democrat uh, House uh, and a Senate, uh, is on the verge of doing, becoming the 38th. But now, just because it becomes the 38th raises the question, can, it sit, can an amendment sit out there for so long that it would – you know, finally be ratified? Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's yeah. a key question that needs to be answered. We've taken a look at it, and uh, my colleague Tom Jipping um, has said, no, uh, that is not the case. Uh, it, uh, it, the, the ERA, uh, as it's known, the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, <laughs> does, does not exist in that form anymore. Uh, but regardless of that, uh, there are some problems with the ERA, which we can get into if, uh, if you want. I would actually love for you to get into it a little bit. Sure. So, uh, so Jared Stepman, uh, who I know you've had on the program, we have. I love a great colleague of mine, yeah. an, an excellent writer. Uh, you know, he's identified four potential outcomes that uh, they, that would result from the Equal Rights Amendment, and the first is that women would have to sign up for the, the military draft. Uh, of, of course, uh, you know that's a, that's a huge change. Um, we we don't know what uh, what the future holds. We. I, personally hope that we never have to be in a situation where we're, we're, we return to the, the Vietnam era and, and open up the draft again, but uh, that is a consequence. 
Um, we, we've talked about bathrooms before. Uh, you know, this is an issue where it would disallow same-sex bathrooms. Uh, again, the, the ERA was debated in an era before we were into any of these discussions that seem to be so topical today, but this is one other, uh, one other consequence. Um, this one particularly stands out uh, in my mind. It would end the use of women-only shelters uh, because, again, we, we live at a time when, uh, you know, there's uh, unisex bathrooms and, and, and uh, people who were uh, biologically male who now are, you know, saying they're female mm-hmm. and, and wanting access to these, these women-only shelters. Uh, you know, it just raises questions about uh, the safety of, of those individuals who are in those places. And, uh, and then, of course, the, the big one is uh, government funding of abortion. Uh, so the, the ERA, um, you know, would, would enshrine this right to taxpayer funding of abortion in the Constitution. And I think that that uh, would, would offend uh, over half of uh, the country, uh, which uh, has strong feelings on this issue, maybe more than half of the country. And, uh, and so these are all things that need to be considered. Of course, the Virginia legislature is moving forward regardless of, of these. It's already passed one house of the Virginia Assembly, and, uh, and it seems like it's going to get a favorable vote in the other. And then it's going to be up to the courts to decide what to do next. That's uh, so interesting. I appreciate that, Rob. Let's, uh, I just want you to help our, our listeners understand and how we prepare for spotting fake news. And, you know, as we go forward, getting closer to the election, there's going to be more and more of it. Yes. Well, Dennis Prager has a really interesting column. This is uh, this is a two-parter um, because you have to really read last week's column on the Daily Signal to understand some of the backstory. Uh, Prager, um, you know, came under attack by Newsweek uh, for uh, really this this kind of odd situation where the reporter was saying that uh, he was disparaging Anne Frank. Of course, Dennis Prager himself is Jewish. He often writes about these issues. He took offense to this. And he writes in this week's column, uh, which you can find uh, today on the Daily Signal, um, just about his interactions with Newsweek. And I think it's really revealing uh, for him to put this on the table and talk about his communication with the editor-in-chief of Newsweek and some of the, uh, the concerns that he has about how they've handled not only their coverage of the story, but the correction of the story. And frankly, uh, if I could give a personal example on this, I, I, I'd like to share with your listeners, because I, I and the Heritage Foundation experienced this recently on two occasions. Uh, Tucker Carlson, who's been a longtime friend of, of mine and somebody who I, I greatly respect and admire, uh, had some bad information that he shared about the Heritage Foundation on a show in December. And uh, it was really incumbent upon uh, me and our team and, and the organization to correct the record and, uh, and respond to those people who were reaching out to us seeking more information. And then it was repeated in a Daily Caller op-ed last week, Bill, and shortly after we spoke. And uh, again, um, I, I felt the need to quickly respond uh, with, with a, my own op-ed uh, explaining that, no, the author had repeated information <laughs> that Tucker had gotten wrong in the first place. So it just goes to show how quickly this information can spread, especially in an age of social media. And I think it's why we all need to be uh, at least a little bit skeptical and try to find multiple sources uh, when it comes to verifying news and information. Uh, never trust uh, just, just one place. Always see if you can get a uh, second or third source to confirm it. Yeah, good point. So you think there's going to be fireworks tonight in Des Moines? I certainly do. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is heating up. Uh, <laughs> there, uh, there is uh, this feud brewing between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. 
Uh, at the same time, you uh, you have a, a, a smaller stage, so uh, the candidates themselves will have more time, more airtime to, I think, discuss some of the, the, the issues of debate. Uh, there seems to be a divide on big things like health care and, uh, and, and whether or not we should embrace a more socialistic vision of America. So I'm going to be interested in uh, keeping a close eye on it. Yeah, Rob, I sure appreciate you doing the show. Thank you so much for uh, being with us on Tuesdays, and have a great rest of the day. Thank you, Bill. Yep, Rob Lee's been my guest, executive editor of The Daily Signal. Welcome back to the show. Awful glad to be welcoming Mary Jo Sharp. She uh, is a former atheist who came to faith. I love those stories because they're so rich. And she uh, first started uh, encountered apologetics in her own spiritual search while she was seeking answers. What a wise thing to do. Do the study, do the work. And now she's an assistant professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University and founder and director of Confident Christianity Apologetics Ministry. Mary Jo, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me here. You kidding? This is great. Now, your book is called Why I Still Believe a Former Atheist Reckoning with the Bad Reputation Christians Give a Good God. That's often the case, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's the book entails my story of, of dealing with this and engaging in my Christian faith in spite of all of the hypocrisy and judgmentalism that I encountered. Yeah. Start with the, the atheism part. It's interesting to me. <laughs> yeah. So the atheism part is interesting to me, too. I bet. <laughs> It's um, so it's not that I was a hostile atheist or an angry atheist, which is many times what people think of when they hear the word atheist. Um, and, you know, and that that sort of makes sense because a lot of what we see in social media is what's been backed by the new atheists, and the, and they're very aggressive against religion. But I grew up um, in a family that did not go to church. Uh, they stopped going to church when I was very little. And we we lived in a part of the country that is not culturally Christian. I grew up in the Portland, Oregon area. Oh, yeah. yeah, so I, I like to tease. I eventually moved, made my way down to Houston, Texas. And so I like to tease Texans and I, I tell them the difference between Portland and Houston culturally is, you know, we don't have a church on every street corner, nor a Tex-Mex restaurant. And <laughs> I lived my, in Houston my, for a while, so I know that to be true. <laughs> right. You know, there are churches, gas stations. Tex-Mex restaurants everywhere. So uh, joking aside, I just, I grew up in an area that uh, people didn't really talk about their faith as much, and it was much more private. So what I knew of Christianity was what I really gleaned from TV and the movies. And that's pretty shallow stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what, what I did get in my childhood, though, was my family loved sciences. They loved the sciences. They loved the outdoors. They loved the arts. And so I had this rich cultural upbringing in nature and science shows and going out into nature. My dad took us camping all the time and taught us to love uh, the beauty of the outdoors. He also, he also, that was like what we watched was nature and science shows like Carl Sagan and uh, Mutual of Omaha's Wild America. So I had this, this rich appreciation for the beauty of the natural realm. And then we were a musical family. Uh, we all play, most of us played instruments or play instruments. And so I grew up with an appreciation of the arts and, and seeing this great beauty that mankind could create uh, and, one, and began wondering as I got older as a teenager, what is all this for? You know, I've been told through 
the shows that I was watching with my dad and things that we encountered in the sciences that the earth is just in a small planet that's in a far off corner of the universe. We're kind of, you get the idea that we're relatively insignificant in this vast universe. And as I got older, I began to wonder, well, what does that mean for me as a human being? And for how does that make sense of the experiences that I'm having? And I began to think that this, there must be more, there must be something else. And I began to wonder does my life have meaning, purpose, and value? And how do I know that? And um, what is that that infuses my life with meaning, purpose, and value? Where do you get things like that? Now, I, I wouldn't have framed it that way because I was a, a older high school student and young college student, but I was thinking on those kinds of things. Why do I think I matter? And who says I matter? And where does that ultimately come from? And I think that was what was pushing me on to search for answers to those kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. So, Mary Jo, when you grow up in a family that isn't going to church and you are, are, you know, you're calling yourself an atheist, but not an aggressive one or a hostile one, how does the family determine what is good and evil, what is right and wrong? Uh, how does that all get worked out? Yeah, that's a great question. They, we didn't talk about it a lot. Okay. Uh, we were... <laughs> We were sort of an average American family. Uh, I have great parents, but, you know, they didn't say when they were laying down the law, like you're not allowed to be out past this time or you shouldn't do this or whatever. They weren't saying because in, you know, Kant's ethical theory or you know, they're not going into sort of a background like this is how we ground what we know is true. They're not saying things like, well, the Bible says this mm-hmm. because that's not how they do it. They're just saying things like. I remember my mom saying the friends you keep or how you will be judged. So you'll be judged by your friends, you know, and, and what the kinds of things that they do. But she didn't lay down like a foundation for that. So I I would say I don't know how they were grounding it yeah. because it wasn't talked about. Yeah. And then the morality part, uh, you know, um, your parents were nice people, so they probably taught you nice things. But, you know, without, without the constructs of Scripture, um, your morality was shaped by, I guess, what they felt was appropriate to tell you, right? Yeah, it would be a cultural background. Yeah. And I've, okay. I've actually said, you know, my atheism was more cultural. I was more of a, like a non-theist. I just didn't believe and mm-hmm. we didn't, but we weren't talking and grounding these ideas right. anywhere. Now, what was it like when you would, you know, make friends with people in high school or, or even in grade school when other friends would be talking about God and their experiences at church and youth camp? And didn't that seem appealing to you at, at all? It seemed weird. (laughs) They were nice. Like, I love my friends, my Christian friends growing up, but I didn't really think of them as my Christian friends. So they were just people that I knew, and Mm -hmm. they also happened to go to church. So we didn't get into, like I said, my my culture, we're not real talkative about our beliefs. We're not really in your face. Uh, So people didn't say like, hey, and you know why I think this way? Because Jesus is my savior. They didn't say things like that. So I viewed them as pe- my friends. They happened to go to church, but I, I didn't put anything more on top of that. Mm-hmm. So Mary Jo, when did you finally kind of cry out, hey, God, are you there? Tell me about you. Well, I had a high school band director who I greatly respected. And it, so part of my story is that I did go to college to become a music teacher myself. So this, this was a gentleman that I really respected for his profession and then also for how he taught students a love of music. And I just thought he was an all-around great guy. And he was a Christian who was burdened for me, very burdened for me. 
And he, he actually tells me, we keep in contact, and he said, like, he just could not. It was one of those things where he wasn't sleeping well at night, and he was just constantly burdened to share his faith with me, even though he'd never shared with anybody before me. So he, my senior year of high school, he took a, a leap of faith, <laughs> and he gave me a Bible, an NIV one-year Bible, and said, when you go off to college, you're going to have hard questions. I hope you'll turn to this. He also prayed with me, and uh, he says that I did not receive this well, <laughs> which <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah, he does, though. He does. Yeah, he actually was worried that he says, I thought you were going like, to turn me into the principal or something, and I didn't. Uh, he actually hit me at that time when I was having all those questions about, you know, why do I say I matter? What makes me think I matter? And do I just live and die? And that's all there is. And all this beauty is for nothing. Ultimately, it just dies with the death of the universe. And I was thinking those kind of things when he hit me with that. So because of my respect for him, um, I began to read that Bible. And I started looking at it. Was a, since it was an NIV one year, it had Psalms and Proverbs and Old Testament, New Testament every single day which, you know, I started reading it faster than the daily reading plan because it just was not what I was expecting. It wasn't the caricatured version of Christianity I saw on um, the TV, such as The Simpsons, nor was it like the overly pious view that some of the really old movies I liked would show of people, of clergy. Um, it was just very real. It seemed very historical, very biographical, specifically talking about Luke's gospel, and how he just says he's investigating all these things carefully so that his friend can know the certainty of the things he's been taught. And then he moves into, and by the third chapter, we're seeing his, he moves into this deep explanation of setting down what's going on in a certain time, in a certain place in history. He says in the 13th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, and then he gives us all these governing offices and people and place, places. So to me, this very greatly contrasted for one, what I thought it was going to be. Actually, I didn't really know what I thought it was going to be. But two, it just seemed very real. And as I was reading and I was, I was gaining um, a sense of what the biblical teachings were about, and specifically what Jesus was teaching, I came to find out that this was the source that I was, this was that intelligence behind all the beauty and the goodness and truth that I was seeing. So if I thought there was justice and injustice in the world, this was explaining to me, yeah, there is, and this is you know, why it exists. Yeah, Mary Jo, you're not afraid to put a couple of things side by side on the grill. When you take like the beauty of salvation and you lay that uh, alongside the ugliness of human hypocrisy and evil, you've got yourself uh, tension. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And in your book, what... yeah, go ahead. No, go carry on. <laughs> yeah, in your book, you, you're gonna you're gonna help uh, listeners and readers um, deal with questions they might be having. Things like, uh, isn't there too much pain and suffering to believe? Or is it okay to have doubts? Um, you know, and it seems to be a lot of people's story. They need to grapple with these issues and they need to examine the evidence and come to their conclusions based on the evidence of Scripture. Yeah, and that's, that's one of the reasons that I wrote the book was because many times apolog apologetics and apologists, we... we we get into our apologetics where we're like presenting arguments to people and we sometimes we can get very philosophical or whatever, but we don't share with people how these arguments actually are then applied into our daily lives or how we utilize them. We, we don't 
necessarily let them into our mind to say, what do I struggle with and how do these arguments affect me? And one of the things I wanted to do with the book was to demonstrate that for me, it, the apologetics arguments showed, show me that God is very real. And so that there is this tension in living, that there is the beauty of God's salvation for us, but it's going to coexist alongside the situation that that we're in, which is we're in a fallen world Mm -hmm. in which we are committing acts of evil. And even the Christians, even the ones who say, Hey, I'm saved by Jesus's, you know, Jesus blood covers me and I have God's grace and mercy on my life. Even those people continue to do things that are evil. And so there's going to be this tension because we have the already, which is that Jesus has come to save us. But we also have the not yet, which is that resurrection is coming in the future. So uh, there is definitely a tension that we live in. And I think it's well explored through some of these arguments uh, that we have in apologetics. Yeah, Mary Jo, you raise a provocative question in your book. Does atheism explain the human experience better than Christianity can? Yes, (laughs) I do raise that question. Say more about that. Yeah. So for me, as I was disappointed and heartbroken by what I found in the church, um, which was that people were people, no matter where you went, they were just regular people. I was naively hoping that I would find this group of people who were you know, just adamantly pursuing goodness, truth, and beauty with their whole lives. And when I found that That was not always the case. In fact, I found more oftentimes than not that people weren't adhering to what they said they professed uh, in the Bible, that I began to wonder, you know, why did I believe and what, what was it that I believed? And I realized I didn't have good answers for things like, does God exist? So I, as I went back and started looking for answers to my questions and to my doubts, uh, I began to engage in some of the uh, atheist Christian debates and see what the arguments were. And I I tried to find things that, and debates and arguments that were somewhat atheist approved, you know, like I tried to find what they were saying were good arguments. And so I even went in like the first debate that I listened to, I I went into it thinking, you know, I kind of hope that the atheist arguments make more sense. And in the book, I say that they're smarter, sleeker, and sexier. Now, that wouldn't necessarily make them true, but I was hoping, in some sense, I was hoping that the atheist arguments would be true uh, because then I could move on from the church. I could be liberated and I could get rid of this community that was causing me pain and I could just step out of it. Um, But what I found when I started listening to the arguments was that I was disappointed with the atheist arguments. I was disappointed in that they did not well explain my experience of being human. And and I'll give a couple examples of what I mean by that. But it, it was really, it was sort of aggravating, upsetting, because when I encountered those first debates, for one, I was encountering all these philosophical arguments for Christianity I'd never encountered before. I'd never heard in a church. And that made me upset about my Christian education. Like, what are we learning in the church? I, I kept thinking to myself, you know, like uh, later on, I was thinking, no wonder people walk away because they don't know the depth of the philosophical uh, arguments for Christianity. They don't know what they're leaving. Mm. And, and then on the other side, uh, when I was looking at the atheist arguments and I was disappointed, I was thinking to myself, this doesn't explain things um, in a way that I can commit to it. So I, I, 
Now I kind of wonder when people deconvert, what are they leaving to? And I said I'd give a couple of examples of this. So um, two of the things that stood out for me was the grounding for things, like you mentioned early on, what is the grounding for goodness? Yeah. What is the grounding for good and evil when you step away from a Christian worldview? All right, I'm, I'm going to hit pause at that point, Mary Jo, and then we'll take a break and then come right back and pick up exactly where we left off. Do not put your finger right on that spot, okay? All right, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. Mary Jo Sharp is my guest. She's written a book called Why I Still Believe, A Former Atheist Reckoning with the Bad Reputation. Christians give a good God. Uh, right before break, Mary Jo, we were trying to get to the arguments uh, from atheists that weren't very satisfying. Yeah, there were there were two areas that specifically I was I'm going to mention, which are the um, goodness, grounding goodness. Uh, so good and evil, where do we get these concepts from and what, how do we ground them with meaning? And then the other idea is our human reasoning as trustworthy. We have to ground our rationality somewhere as well. And for me, looking at atheism, which you know, Richard Dawkins actually really well explains in his book, River Out of Eden, he talks about the universe is void. At its base, it is void of such ideas, such concepts as good and evil, justice and injustice, and all these things that relate to morality. The universe is actually void of that. It is basically what we are is the result of this evolutionary process, um, and everything is reducible to our DNA. He says that DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. So in that sort of a worldview, for one— I can't know that good and evil exist. Perhaps they are byproducts of a survival mechanism, you know, through natural selection that we have come to a point where we think some things are good or we think some things are evil, but this is just a byproduct of that survival mechanism. And there's no truth to these things. So whether I think it is good to save the environment or whether I think it is good to treat people with respect, that's all just survival mechanism. There's no ultimate truth to it. And that was one thing that really bothered me because as I looked at some of the things in my life, like I could love my mother or I could hate my mother. Well, according to Dawkins, this would just be the result of my DNA, of the configuration of my atoms. It's not a choice. I'm not freely choosing to love her or freely choosing to hate her. Rather, this is a result of uh, my material matter and the way that it's arranged. That didn't make sense of my human experience um, because I know for me and, and for most people, we can't even get through a single day without having a should or ought thought in our mind that I should do this because it's good or I, you know, I should brush my teeth because it'll keep cause me to not have cavities. We have these shoulds and oughts that there's some kind of standard out there that is good. And that is something that is across the board through time and uh, space and human history. So that was one of the things that atheism lacked a grounding for the concepts of good and evil, where that's coming from. And then the other was the failure to demonstrate human reasoning as trustworthy. Again, going back to um, Richard Dawkins and his explanation of the universe, he says that there's no, you know, there's no justice, no injustice. There's no rhyme or reason to things. DNA just is. So one of the growing concerns I had with atheism was that the source of a human's rationality 
was not a rational source. It wasn't a personal source, nor did it have any purpose. Rather, reason was the result of non-rational. This is a, a quote from Ken Samples. He says, reason is the result of non-rational and impersonal process without the purpose without purpose, consisting of a combination of genetic mutation, variation, and environmental factors. So I thought if, if non-rational sources produced my rationality, then why should I trust it? And from an atheist perspective, um, I, you know, I, I really couldn't. I couldn't trust my rationality. Perhaps you know, it would give me things that were good for survival, but that doesn't mean that my rationality is giving me truth. It just means that whatever is fit for survival is what it's going to give me. So I really couldn't accept that as well. That was too much of a void because it would under it would seem to undercut atheism as well, since you couldn't know that atheism was true, because that might just be a byproduct of your survival mechanism. Mm -hmm. So those were the kinds of things that left me with too large of a void to be able to commit to atheism as a worldview. Mary Joe, you've done some thinking. <laughs> I guess you could say that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Another thing you dealt with in your book is the truth of Christianity. How can it matter when the behaviors of Christians are reprehensible? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the tough one, right? We're that's we're getting into. Yeah. Yeah. It's an ex the experience of Christianity. A lot of times is painful, and um, that that's the problem. Is that you know though Jesus we have Jesus praying for us in the garden and. John 17, and he's asking God that we would all be one. And, and the reason he cites is, you know, may they all be one, and it's so that the world will know that he's God's son. And then we look out at the situation of Christianity today, and that is so not the case. Um, we're not one, and we, we're very good at attacking each other in large ways publicly, as well as in small ways by not, you know, not even trying to become Christ-like in our own lives. Um, so ignoring the sanctification process for ourselves. I've heard so many Christians say, me and Jesus, were good. You know, we, we got together back then and we're good. And, and it's used as an excuse for their vices, for not growing mm -hmm. and not intending to grow. And it's stay away from me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't, don't ask I don't me want... any more questions. Me and Jesus are good. Yeah. I don't want to be discipled. I'm good at where I'm at. I don't need anything else. Um, and it's, you know, for me, a lot of times it's an excuse to just stay in my vices. So what I saw, uh, was that though Christians could behave in opposition to the truth of, that they professed, that didn't actually negate the truth. It doesn't invalidate the, the propositional truth of Christianity, whether it's true or not. Mm -hmm. Um, so I had to discover for myself, do I think this is true? And if so, why do I think it's true? Um, an example I give in my book is that when I have my baby girl, when I first come out of the hospital with her, I walk out of the hospital into this cloud of cigarette smoke. And I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking around like, who, where's this cigarette smoke coming from? Why is this right here in front of the doors as I'm leaving the hospital? And I'm looking off to the right, and there's a group of doctors and nurses who would absolutely tell me and testify that they believe that smoking causes cancer. It would, you know, it was harmful to human life, and they would give me the whole. If I were back in the hospital with them, they would give me this whole litany. But here they are smoking, and I thought, ah, there it is. People can 
profess one thing even when they don't live like it's true. Um, that doesn't mean that it's not true. It doesn't negate the truthfulness of smoking causing cancer, right? It just it just means that they're choosing a lifestyle and rebellion to their own beliefs. And that profoundly impacted me in seeing Christianity in this mess of living, right? That there mm-hmm. are always going to be people in a fallen world who do not demonstrate the truth of Christianity in their own lives, even if they profess it to be true. Yeah. But despite the fact there's going to be lots of hypocrisy in the world, um, it's never going to ever negate the the grace and truth of Christ. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we just have about a minute left, Mary Jo. Uh, tell me a little bit about the Confident Christianity Apologetics Ministry you have. Yeah, that's a ministry I didn't intend to have, but here we are. <laughs> it's a ministry that developed um, out of my own search for answers to questions, and it's um, online. I, I actually started it up as a blog, and it started as a blog to defend the resurrection, but now today exists as a blog with a lot of resources, connections to other websites, some of my former debates with Muslims, and uh, there's a lot on there for you to you know work, dig through and enjoy. And so if you go to confidentchristianity.com, you can enjoy those, what we've got there for you to help you defend your own faith. Yeah. And Mary Jo's book is called Why I Still Believe, A Former Atheist Reckoning with the Bad Reputation Christians Give a Good God. Mary Jo Sharp has been my guest. Mary Jo, thanks for doing the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. No, it's been great. I look forward to doing this again. All right. Me too. All right. Thanks. We'll take a little short break and then we'll be back with hour two. I will be joined by Dr. Jim Bilby, professor at Bethel, and also by Dr. Greg Borgon, who is a professor here at Northwestern. We'll take a short break and be back with Hour 2. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.